I hope that you have had a wonderful week. I hope that you have had the opportunity to give thanks for the things in your life that you're thankful for. And I am thankful to have the opportunity this morning, as always, to tell you how thankful I am for you, for this church family. I love you, and I am so incredibly thankful to be a witness to what God is doing in your lives. Thank you for allowing the Lord to use you the way that you do. Before we get into this morning's lesson, I want to tell you something exciting about next week. Uh, Next Sunday, we are going to start a new quarter on our Sunday morning Bible classes, and we're going to start doing something uh, different and exciting. I think that every quarter, when when we kick off the quarter, the first Sunday of the new quarter, we're going to have a combined adult Bible class. So next Sunday morning, I hope that you will be here at 9.30 for adult Bible classes. You won't meet in your individual classes. You'll meet in here as we kick off a new quarter. We're going to be talking about the life of Moses, but specifically we're going to talk about how Moses points us to Jesus and how by studying the life of Moses, we can learn more about Jesus, our our Redeemer, and how we are following Jesus just as the people of Israel followed Moses out of slavery, we are following Jesus out of slavery and into freedom. So if you've been thinking, because you haven't been attending Sunday morning classes, if you've been thinking, you know what, our family needs to start coming to Bible class, next Sunday would be a fantastic, this Sunday would be a great Sunday also, but (laughs) next Sunday as well, please, please make plans to be with us for our combined adult class uh, next Sunday morning. We are wrapping up this morning our series, Comfort Food, and we've been talking about the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and I know that it's been uh, a unique series. It's been uh, challenging for me to limit myself on on the applications that we're making, but before we jump into today's lesson, I just kind of want to walk through some of the main points that we've made throughout this series. We've said things like this. Number one, do you actually believe you are this blessed? That's one of the questions we've been reflecting on. Of course, all year long we've been reflecting on our life. But specifically, as we've read through the first few chapters of Ephesians, we've been asking ourselves, do you actually believe that you are as blessed as Paul says that you are? Do you believe that all the spiritual blessings, everything the Spirit of God has to offer, belongs to you because you belong to Jesus? Do you really believe that? Number two, we said what's true of the head is true of the whole, right? What's true of Jesus is now true of you. If you are united with Jesus, then what's true of Jesus is true of you. What belongs to Jesus by nature and by merit belongs to you by grace. His inheritance is your inheritance. His life is your life. His victory over sin and death is your victory over sin and death presently and in the age to come. So what's true of the head is true of the whole. We said this, good works are the response of grateful faith to the good news. That good works are are the way that we respond in faith, in grateful faith, 
to what Jesus has done for us. That we are merely walking in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. And that even our good works are not something in which we boast as if we did it ourselves. That we have been saved by grace. And then by grace we've received this new way of living, this new way of walking. And then finally last week we said Jesus has already purchased the peace. Jesus has already purchased the peace. The peace vertically between us and God, but also the the peace horizontally between us and other people. And I know that that as we've gone throughout this series, maybe maybe you've been thinking, Wes, you're you're not really you're not really getting into the application of this. Like what what does this mean for us? Like how should we respond to this? How should we live this out? What are we supposed to do? And that's been intentional. That we really haven't jumped into what are we supposed to do about this. Because we've merely been feasting on what is true. We have to talk about what is true before we talk about what we do. We, we have to just dwell in this. Marinate in this. Enjoy this. And ask ourselves, do you actually believe this? Because some of us don't. Somebody said yes. <laughs> Amen. I'm glad. I'm so glad. Yes. I hope so. I hope we do believe this. That these things are true. Even when they don't look true. Even when they don't feel true. Even when they don't seem true. That because of what Jesus has done, everything has changed. Not just changed for me personally or for you personally, but changed cosmically, that the Son of God is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, that a human, that a human, that the Son of Man, our older brother, is ruling and reigning, and what is true of him is now true of us. Before we talk about well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? How do we live now because this is true? Before we even get to that, we have to just, just dwell on this for a moment. Just reflect on the fact that this is true and ask ourselves, do we actually believe it? Do we, do we believe it not just intellectually, but do we believe it emotionally? Are we allowing this to bring us comfort? When everything in the world seems to be falling apart. When we see things that are so very wrong in our own life, in the life of the people that we love, in the the world around us, do do we stop and say, yes, yes, yes. Those things are true, but they're also temporary. And these truths are forever. And these truths are even more true than the things that I see with my eyes the things that that I experience in the flesh. That these truths, the the truths of the gospel are true eternally, are a deeper kind of truth. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Let's let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to try to work our way, that's a lot of text, but we're going to try to work our way through Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus, but also for the church 
all of us, he's been praying all of these things in the first three chapters. And, and here's how he, he gets to this point. He says, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Paul is, is saying that the things that I'm sharing with you this mystery that I'm revealing to you, and a mystery is a, is a secret. It's not a secret anymore. It's a secret that's been revealed. And Paul's saying, this, this secret that I'm telling you, this mystery that I'm revealing to you, I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make this stuff up. This didn't come out of my own head. This was, this was shown to me by revelation. Jesus taught this to me. The ascended Son of God, the, the Messiah, he revealed this to me. He taught this to me. This didn't come from me. This came from God. This came from the Messiah. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, this is why I talk about this all the time. Why we're always saying that the church is a multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual family. This is why we talk about it all the time, because Paul talked about it all the time. In fact, Paul calls this the mystery of Christ. He says, in past generations, we didn't fully understand this, but now it's been revealed to the apostles and to the prophets through the Spirit that this was always God's plan, that it was always God's plan to bring the nations, the other ethnic groups, into the family of God, into the covenant family, so that Jews and everybody else, all of us, that we all get to be a part of the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and to his descendants. We all get to be a part of that story, part of that family. And Paul says, I didn't make this up because he knows it's going to be hard for every generation of the church all over the world. But even in his own generation, in his own place, it's going to be hard for people from different backgrounds to live together as one family. But before he even tells them, hey, this is what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live, first he has to say, this is God's plan. And you need to believe it. You need to believe that this is at the heart of the gospel. The multi-ethnic church, the multinational church, the multilingual church is at the heart of of the gospel. This was always God's plan to reconcile not just himself with people, but people with people. And before he even tells you, okay, now here's what you as an individual Christian are supposed to do, you have to believe that this is true, that this is the mystery of Christ, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, that Gentiles, no, no matter what nation, what ethnic group they come from, they are a part of the body of Christ, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. Verse 7, of this gospel, this good news, of this gospel, I was made a minister 
according to the gift of God's grace. Let's just stop there for a second. Sometimes we, we talk about grace and we limit it to just salvation. But in Paul's mind, grace is, is God's generosity, God's gift, and even his apostleship, his ministry, his work, his job is God's grace. Whatever God gives you, it is by grace. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's so good, isn't it? You know what he's saying? He's saying that the rulers and authorities on earth, the rulers and authorities on earth, they really have a a spiritual, a, a heavenly, an unseen counterpart. Spiritual forces, spiritual authorities, sometimes demonic authorities and forces. And he's saying that what God is doing in the multi-ethnic church, what God is doing by bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one family, the, the forces the authorities, the powers in the heavenly places can see what God is doing in the church and they can see the wisdom of God. God is showing all of the forces and all of the authorities and all of the powers, both on earth and in heaven, I've won. I'm victorious. My son is victorious and your time is limited. God is putting the forces and the powers and the authorities both on earth and in heaven on notice that their time is running out. But the time of his kingdom and his people is forever. And we are, we get to be a part of displaying the manifold wisdom of God. How God is wise in every conceivable way. And that when we live out the gospel, when we believe the gospel, when we keep in step with this good news, and we just embrace it and live into it, then the forces and powers and authority, both on earth and in the unseen realms, can see how wise God is. And all of the forces that are arrayed against God and against his wisdom know they have lost because the world had never seen anything like the church before. The world had never seen people from different backgrounds that had nothing in common in the flesh come together the way that they did in Christ. And God is demonstrating and has been demonstrating his rule, his reign, his wisdom. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul considered it a gift 
that he was able to suffer. He was in prison, and he, he felt like this was a gift that God gave him, that he was able to suffer for the sake of the church. That his suffering led to their faith and their belief. And he was glad to do it for the Lord and, and felt like it was a gift that God was given him, that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And whether we recognize it or not or realize it or not, but people have suffered, people have been imprisoned, people have been stoned, people have been beaten, people have died so that you can know the good news about Jesus. Do we ever stop and think about that? Paul suffered what he suffered, and in part, you know the gospel because of what Paul went through. And not just him, but generation after generation after generation of missionaries and evangelists suffered and died and were persecuted so that you could believe this truth, so that you could embrace this truth, so that you could live into this truth. And then so Paul reveals to them what he's been praying for them. He says this in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Oh, there's so much there I want to talk about. This is the fifth time in these three chapters that he's mentioned the riches of the Lord. He says in chapter 1 and verse 7, the riches of his grace the riches of his glorious inheritance, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We read earlier in chapter 3 and verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and here, the riches of his glory. Paul desperately wants the church to understand how rich God is towards them and how all of his wealth, all of his riches belong to them in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the abundance and the generosity that God has at your disposal? Do you understand what God has for you? How he's just overflowing with riches for you. And he says, I, I'm praying that you might be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It isn't just what God has done for you in the past. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for you. That's true. And his death for you means your salvation. But it isn't just what Jesus did for you, past tense. It's also what Jesus is doing for you through the Holy Spirit, present tense. And sometimes we don't think about that. That God is working right now and wants to be working right now on your behalf to strengthen you, to mature you, to bless you, to make you into the person he wants you to be. We, we tend to think, well, Jesus did that, and now it's up to me to pull myself up by my bootstraps and do all the hard work I'm supposed to do. Yes, kind of. But you discount that it's Jesus through the Holy Spirit who's working right now, present tense, on your behalf. If we really believe this, let me ask, the, ask you this. If you really believed, if you really believed there was an exhaust, inexhaustible 
an inexhaustible fortune of spiritual power available to strengthen the church towards maturity, how much time would you spend asking for it to be poured out on us? This is what we mean this year by reflect and renew. Reflect on this question. If you really believed that there was an inexhaustible fortune of spiritual power power available to strengthen the church towards maturity, how much time would you spend asking for it to be poured out on us? See, that's what Paul believed, isn't it? He believed that there was an inexhaustible fortune of spiritual power available to strengthen and mature the church. And so he spent an unimaginable amount of time asking for that fortune of power to be poured out on the church. But most of us don't believe that. We don't believe that. And because we don't believe it, maybe we we don't believe it because nobody's ever told us this. Maybe we don't believe it because it's just so hard to wrap our mind around. Maybe we don't believe it because we're so caught up in what we can see but because we don't believe that there is an inexhaustible fortune of spiritual power available to the church to strengthen and mature us, we don't spend hardly any time praying that it might be poured out on us. But Paul did. He prayed desperately that it be poured out on the church, that they might be strengthened in their inner being, that they might be strengthened towards maturity by the Holy Spirit. Do we pray for that? I mean, it's good that we pray for our health and it's good that we pray for our neighbors and it's good that we pray for these things that can be seen, but how much time do we spend praying that this fortune of grace and mercy and blessings and power and strength be poured out not just on us, on me, on you, but on all of the church, that we might be strengthened towards being the people that God has called us to be. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Yes, when you became a Christian, when you were baptized into Christ, yes, Jesus came through the Spirit to dwell in your heart. But it's not an either-or thing. It's not an either that happened at baptism or, or it, it, it didn't. It's yes, he did, but you need him more on an ongoing basis. And Paul knew that about the church, that you need more of Christ, more of him dwelling in you, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's quite a paradox, isn't it? I want you to know what you can't possibly know. I want you to understand what you you can't possibly understand. I want you to understand what is not understandable, which surpasses knowledge. And I'm praying for you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the riches that God has at your disposal, that he strengthens you so that you can comprehend. Some translations may say grasp. That's kind of a, it's kind of a military term. It's kind of like the idea of someone seizing a city. 
Paul wants you to seize something, to grasp something. He wants you to grasp this knowledge, to seize it, to take hold of it, to comprehend how much Jesus loves you. And we won't understand it. We can't understand it to its fullest extent. But we can't even begin to comprehend it, begin to know it, begin to grasp it, unless we're praying about it and praying for it, that we might be strengthened so that Christ can dwell in our hearts. But what might our lives look like? What might our lives look like if we started to pray like this? What might our lives look like if someone else was praying this on our behalf? What might our words be like? What might our actions be like? What might our thoughts be like? What might our desires be like? If Jesus really dwelt in our hearts through faith more fully than he does now. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. That's what I want for my life, for my words, for my thoughts, for my desires, for my actions. But I'll be honest, I don't spend enough time praying for this. For myself or for you. We have to pray this. We have to believe this. That God has an inexhaustible fortune of power available for us that he wants to pour out on us to strengthen us and mature us and transform us to renew us into the people that we are supposed to be so that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. But do we believe that? Do we pray like we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the second time in Ephesians that he talks about this fullness, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 1 and verse 23. That the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, obviously, this is an idealized vision of the church. But Paul wants us to understand that that's who we're supposed to be, the fullness of God. That we are supposed to be the fullness of God. We have to embrace this and pray like we believe it. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You hear what he says? That God is able to do all that we ask and think. I mean, that in and of itself is amazing, isn't it? That God is able to do all that we ask or think. But more than that, God is able to do more than all we ask or think. More than you're able to ask. More than you're able to think. In fact, more than that. He is able to do far more than all we ask or think. God can't just do all that we ask or think or more than we ask or think. He does far more than all we ask or think. And even beyond that, he is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. I mean, Paul is using every superlative he can think of, isn't he? So that you understand the power that is at work in 
you in us to change us, transform us, renew us, mature us. He wants the church to believe that this is true about them because of what God has done in Christ Jesus and what Christ is doing presently through the work of the Holy Spirit. Do we believe these things? And then, finally, in chapter 4, finally in chapter 4 and verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then the rest of the book. I'm not going to read the rest of the book, but I encourage you to read it. Finally, in chapter 4, he transitions. He says, therefore, because all of this is true, because all of this is true about you, because this is true because of what Jesus has done for you, now, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now start to live this out. Live like these things are true. What does it look like? What does it look like to live like the Spirit of God is really at work within you this way? What does, it live to, what does it look like to live as if Jesus really reigns this way? We've got to stop and ask ourselves, do you really believe? Do you really believe? Let's step through some of these. Do you actually believe that, one, you are forgiven in Christ? Do you actually believe that? That all of those sins that you've committed, the things that you've said you shouldn't have said, the things that you've done you shouldn't have done, the ways that you've fallen short, you are forgiven. Not because of your good works, but because of the grace of God. Do you actually believe that? If you actually believe that, it changes how you live. Do you actually believe you are chosen in Christ? That you are part of the chosen people of God? That you are the chosen people of God? Do you actually believe that we are God's chosen people because of what Jesus has done for us? Do you actually believe that you are lavished with grace in Christ? That you are lavished with grace in Christ. That he has given you more grace than you actually need. That he's not stingy. That God gives you so generously, you can't even begin to comprehend it. Do you believe that you are lavished with grace? Do you believe, do you actually believe you've been granted peace in Christ? Do you believe that you have Vertical peace with God and internal peace, a peace that passes understanding. And whether or not the other person wants to accept it or not, that you now have peace with others. Even if they hate you, even if they despise you, even if they persecute you, even if they think that your people are supposed to be at war with their people, that you, because of what Jesus has done, you have been granted peace in Christ. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe that you are strengthened with power through God's Spirit? And finally, do you actually believe that you are empowered and called to live a holy life in Christ? Do you actually believe that these things are true? Do you believe that this is your calling? That this is your life? That this is the gift that God has given you in Christ Jesus? Because you are 
must believe in order to become. You must believe in order to become. You have to believe that these things are true in order to start living into them. See, our problem is so often that we try to become without first believing. We, we think that it's us, that it's our hard work, that God has just given us a system, that he's given us a set of steps to follow, that we're just supposed to work really hard to become this kind of person. And we think Christianity is just about working hard to be a good person. And yes, it does require that we work hard, but that we work hard in belief, that we work hard knowing that there is a power at work in us from God to strengthen us and mature us and renew us that we can't even really wrap our minds around. We have to believe in order to become. See, so often we don't like doctrine. We don't like things that are we seem theological or theoretical. We just want the practicals. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me the steps. Tell me what I'm supposed to say. Tell me what I'm supposed to pray. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I could just go down a to-do list and check them off, and that way I can feel good about myself, and, and I know the right steps to become the right kind of person. And it doesn't work that way. You have to believe in order to become. These theological truths... You have to believe them. You have to embrace them. You have to know them. You have to know what God in Christ has done for you. You have to know what God in Christ through the Spirit is doing presently on your behalf. And even if you really can't fully understand them or comprehend them, you have to pray that you do. So that in believing that God has done and is doing, and will do these things for his people, that is when we begin to experience renewal. That's when we begin to experience maturity. That's when we begin to experience transformation in believing what God has said about the good news of Jesus. See, it's good news. And good news is not good instructions. It's what God has done for you. Do you believe the good news is true? And if you do, that's when, because of that belief, you begin to live into it. You begin to obey it. You begin to walk in a certain way, to live in a certain way, to do certain things, to stop doing other things because you believe these things things are true. And maybe somebody this morning, you're ready to respond for the very first time to this good news. To believe in order to become. Because you believe that God through Christ has done these things for us, you're ready to respond to Jesus and be baptized into him. Receive his Holy Spirit. Have your sins washed away. Or maybe you've already made that decision. And you need to come back to that faith and come back and live in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We're here to help you. Whether that's help you put Jesus on in baptism or to pray with you, encourage you, our shepherds would love to meet with you after service so you can come forward now. Let's together we stand and sing this song.